Welcome to History City, the story of the second most important place in England. Possibly. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're travelling from the end of the last Ice Age to the present day. First, let's hear the spirit of York fill us in on what's happened so far. It's 1100. As York sees the back of both William the Conqueror and his unfortunate son, William Rufus, the city is pulling itself together after the turmoil of the last 30 years. The church is both a big beneficiary and a major player in this. But, with literally a new sheriff in town, the way the place is governed is also changing. One of the things that happens as a result of the Norman Conquest is that there's a clearer division between the city and the surrounding country side administratively. So what we now think of as the boundary between the city as an administrative unit and the county or the three shires of the county as administrative units really comes into place for the first time after the Norman Conquest. My name is Sarah Rees-Jones and I'm a Professor Emeritus of Medieval History at the University of York. So there are in effect new boundaries around the suburbs of York, so the immediate suburbs outside the city walls are part of the jurisdiction of the city of York, but beyond that you're moving into the shires and the, the county. And that's possibly a new division that's kind of created administratively for the first time. Um, the city itself, part of it comes under the jurisdiction of the Crown, and the Crown also takes over quite a large area of the city that had fallen within the jurisdiction of the Earls of Northumbria, for example in Bootham. And then part of the city falls under the jurisdiction of York Minster and the archbishops who cede authority to the Dean and Chapter of York Minster in this period. So you have a city that's divided in lordship between the authority of the church and the authority of the king. And then in both those halves quite large areas of land are given away to new institutions. So the Crown, for example, William Rufus, William II, founds a major new Benedictine abbey on what had been the site of the Earl of Northumbria's house in Bootham and establishes a new institution, the Abbey of St Mary's, there. Uh, The archbishops are also giving away land. They give away land in Clementhorpe, for example, to establish a new nunnery Um, the Benedictine nunnery dedicated to St Clement. In total, in the century after the Norman Conquest, 16 new religious houses are founded and they form enclaves of their own where they govern themselves, essentially, or are subject to the government of the the church. There's a major building programme at the Minster from the 1080s and we don't actually know <laughs> what's happening with the Anglo-Saxon Minster. I'm Alexandra McLean. I'm a lecturer in the archaeology department at the University of York. Um, so the, the Minster that would have been there, we've never successfully found it. So when they dug under the Minster when the tower started falling down, they expected to find an Anglo-Saxon Minster and they didn't. They came straight down onto Roman uh, stuff um, and, and the Roman Principia. So the Anglo-Saxon Minster is probably off to one side is our best guess. Probably not under St. Michael of Belfry as that's been there for a long time. There's evidence that that's probably there from very early on in the, the post-Roman period. Um, but maybe on the other side in the, in the Minster Gardens, there's probably the, the Anglo-Saxon Minster. What it exactly looks like, we're not sure. Um, but there's a major Norman rebuilding program in the 1080s to turn York Minster into a Romanesque 
cathedral. And they partially reuse some of the Roman foundations and build a cathedral on a scale that, you know, we had not seen in Europe. The 1080s cathedral is massive compared to, to what we would have had and fully stone. Whether the pre-conquest one is stone or timber or a mix of both is, is we don't know. Into the end of the 11th century and into the 12th century, the likelihood is that pretty much every parish church in York, so that's some 40 odd, are being rebuilt in stone. Um, so by 1150, basically every church in York will have been rebuilt in a Romanesque style. You have St. Mary's Abbey, which is under William Rufus. So I think that's also the 1080s, um, uh, maybe 1090s. Um, they are building St. Mary's Abbey, uh, which basically doesn't exist prior to the conquest. The, the land, uh, St. Olive's, that's the, the Earls of Northumbria's land. So St. Olive's is, is an important church uh, for them. Um, but William Rufus takes that land and they build St. Mary's Abbey. Another major um, institution, kind of religious institution that's being built. And you also have St. Leonard's Hospital, which is being built through the 12th century as well. And then later on, you get some of the friaries and, and things like that. And there's an Augustinian priory as well at Fishergate, which is coming in in the 12th century. So there's lots and lots of, of church institutions popping up. Could you just explain who is running what and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and what the difference between them is. Okay, so the minster is going to be run by the archbishop and the dean and chapter uh, of the minster. And they are going to be in charge of any building projects that happen within that precinct. St. Mary's Abbey is a Benedictine establishment, which is being built on land and patronized by the king. But it's, a, but it's going to have an abbot and it's a, a Benedictine establishment. I'm not sure about the foundation of St. Leonard's Hospital. That may be royal patronage as well. Often the later establishments, the smaller monastic houses, the friaries, the priories, those are often elite landholders who give a piece of land and provide the seed funding for the establishment of a small monastery. So you get a variety of players. And then parish churches are almost always the immediate landholder. Um, so in, in rural places, it'd be the lord of the, the manor of the village. In urban areas, it's a little more complicated, especially once you start getting burgesses and, and things like that. So they're kind of an urban group who might patronize these churches and the parish community might have a little more means to patronize a church. So it might not all be kind of elite driven, um, but, but a lot of it will be. I'm trying to think of the average man or woman in the street, and I know that there is no such thing. <laughs> but for ordinary people, how did they interact with all these big religious institutions? Yeah, so the parish churches, they would have interacted with a lot. Um, so they would be their, their kind of daily church, the church that they're paying tithes to, the church they would expect to be married and buried and baptized in, uh, that sort of thing. So they would have had a lot of interaction with that church and probably the elite people in that parish as well. So the parish church is a really interesting spot as this kind of crossroads between different social groups and classes, because it has to be open to everybody in the community. But it's still a kind of canvas for elite expenditure and patronage, and the elites are going to be driving the look of it in a, in a lot of ways and, and what's there. Monasteries and, and the minster are very different. So the minster is, we kind of don't recognize it now because those walls are gone, but the minster would have been a, an enclosed precinct 
which would have been quite separate from the rest of the town um, and would have been sort of visibly walled off. Um, and you would have not necessarily been able to move freely all the time in and out of that precinct. Some people would have, and there were buildings and things within the Minster precinct around Petergate and stuff like that. But it's a controlled environment. And also St. Mary's Abbey too. You know, I think we forget now because really we only have the city walls left. So York was an extremely walled <laughs> city in lots of ways. So you would have had the city wall, you would have had St. Mary's Abbey wall running right up to the city wall in some around King's Manor. Um, and, and you would have had small avenues kind of in between those walled precincts. And that would have run all the way down to the river. Um, and then you've got, just going through Booth and Bar, then you've got the Minster precincts and you would have had walls there. So you would have had a lot more constraint on movement, I think, than we think about now. And a lot of that is down to the major religious institutions. Whether the, uh, the later friaries and things like that, they usually don't have walls because they're kind of being shoehorned into an existing urban landscape. And it's a lot harder to disrupt it uh, at that point. But St. Mary's Abbey being fairly recent after the conquest and being on the outskirts outside the walled city allowed it a little more leeway in terms of staking out their ground. Um, but yeah, if you've ever gone along on, along Bootham, that wall that goes out along Bootham, that's part of St. Mary's Abbey precinct wall. And it would have run right up around the bend in front of Bootham Bar to the little walkway that goes down in between King's Manor and the city wall that goes into the museum gardens. So that would have been the other side of that wall. So you got this really on this side of the city, there's a lot of walls. And yes, yeah, so how they interact with those religious institutions is variable. I think there would have been um, fairs and markets and things like that, which, uh, you know, people might have come into the precinct of St. Mary's Abbey to exchange and buy things and so on at certain times of year, or certain days of the week. But then a lot of other times they may have never seen the inside of that. You know, that was really for the monks and, and maybe for the elite patrons um, who spent their, their money there and who, who patronized that abbey. But a lot of the, the normal folks of York wouldn't have, have seen inside St. Mary's Abbey. That, that would have been a, a much more closed off space. And then the Minster, because you have the, the parish churches, people aren't really a kind of attending the Minster as a, as a normal church. Um, you know, they've got parish churches to attend. But there might have been, you know, major days where people might have visited the Minster. But the, for the most part, these major religious institutions would people would have probably had a lot less interaction with them than we do now, where you can go in and tour them and, and things like that. Then in addition to all of that, you have the merchants and craftsmen of the city who already, by the time of the Norman Conquest, have a right to make their own laws concerning trade and the local governance of trade and have their own guild hall, is what it's later called, their own hall in which they can hear please, and they are gradually formalised and given more power in the post-Norman period as well, until eventually, a century after the conquest, you have a mayor of York, um, and we still have a mayor of York to this day. And we've got a lord mayor as yes. well. They are the same thing, really, it's just a different type of address. When did the mayor appear? What's the first time that somebody's called so the first records of somebody actually being called a mayor of York are at the very beginning of the 13th century, so a long time after the Norman Conquest. But before that, we know that there were aldermen and uh, who performed essentially the, essentially the same fun function 
in the 12th century as they went on to perform under the mayors in the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries. Right. It's a very complicated cake now, isn't it? Is it is very complicated, yes. Because I can imagine that with tradesmen who are presumably becoming aldermen, senior mm. secular figures, and all the religious institutions... Mm and the Crown, mm. all owning different bits, mm. laying claim to being in control of those bits and having authority over them. It's a recipe for conflict, isn't it? It is a recipe for conflict, and in a way, it's something that we can understand from our contemporary experience, that we have different layers and levels of government. So we have local government and we have national government, and the relationship between the two is not always friendly or amicable. How do those conflicts get resolved? Um, it's really hard to say in this early period because most of these institutions, particularly the local aldermen and even to some extent the Crown and the church landowners, are operating without the use of written records. And indeed, the English Crown is innovative in introducing written records as part of its administrative procedures through two great offices of state, the Chancery, which is the writing house, and the Exchequer, which is the counting house, during the course of the 12th century, but particularly from the late 12th century. And that's a period, really, of the stabilisation of government. From, And we're now talking about 100 years after the Norman Conquest. And prior to that, government isn't very stable, particularly in the north. You've got a long period of what's sometimes described as the anarchy, um, when different local forces are at war with each other. Um, people go on producing coins and they go on raising taxes, but it isn't straightforward. And there are even historians who claim that you cannot really talk about the Norman Conquest being brought to a conclusion and stable government being established in the north of England until the 1220s. So that's a hundred and fifty years, something like that, after the initial conquest. So... York, like many other cities around England, are self-governing, self-regulating on the secular side. Mm. But presumably there would have been some friction with the clergy. There's some friction with the church-owned estates because the citizens did control the physical areas of the city that fell within the jurisdiction of the king and they're chartered to exercise local courts on his behalf in that area. But there are also physical areas of the city, for example, around the Minster Close, around Petergate, but also in some of the suburbs, and there are little bits and pieces all over the place, that were owned by the church, by the dean and chapter, or one of the canons, or the archbishop. And there, the secular jurisdiction of that liberty of St Peter, is what it came to be known, was um, independent from the city corporation, So if you lived in a certain part of Petergate, you didn't pay your taxes to the city, you paid them to the archbishop. And if you fell into a dispute over your property with somebody else, you didn't take your case to the city court, you took it to a court run by the archbishop or the dean and chapter, increasingly it's the dean and chapter, a court that's physically located just in front of the west front of York Minster on on a site, you know, that on a building that's gone, it's no longer there. It's where Reed's Tea Rooms is, probably, isn't it? Yeah, roughly, yeah. So there's that level of complication that even within secular jurisdiction that ultimately is governed by the common law of England, 
there is a division between the areas of the city that fall within the fee of the king and are administered on his behalf by the mayor and aldermen and freemen of the city and the area of the city, which is not very large really, that falls within the jurisdiction of the York Minster particularly as landowner. Then there's something else which is entirely separate again, which is church law, but I don't know if you want me to go into that. If it affects York, yes. Well, we've so far been talking about secular jurisdiction so, which is mainly laws to do with the ownership of property, whether it's movable property or real estate um, or crime, um, any kind of um, theft, assault, murder. Those are all governed by secular law and come ultimately under the jurisdiction of the royal courts. Um, but there's a whole area of law known as uh, church law or sometimes people describe it as canon law which is to do with jurisdiction over morality, which is only subject to the government of the church. Within England, that would ultimately go up to the courts of the archbishops of York and Canterbury. Beyond that, if you appeal beyond that, you go to the papacy. Um, And so that affects things like sexual conduct, so anything to do with marriage, for example. Lots of things that we would regard as family law now to do with the making and ending of marriages and uh, the guardianship of children and uh, the disposition of certain kinds of estates after death, that all comes under the law of the church. Things to do with matters of the faith, things like heresy, but also things like the taking of oaths, which people might do in a business transaction, for example, that all comes under the law of the church. And wherever you lived in York, you would be subject to church law for those kinds of behaviour, some of which, many of which would now come under secular courts, like the whole family law, for example, now comes under secular courts. So you could be a tradesman. Yes. Striking a bargain with somebody. Yeah. You might want to make an oath. Yeah. And that would be covered by church law. Yeah. But depending on where you lived and how you operated, Mm -hmm. your other day-to-day requirements would be governed by either the secular law of the city or of the law pertaining to the minster. Yes, and even that transaction you're making, say you're um, a cobbler and you're buying leather and you, you do it under oath, the oath is subject to the jurisdiction of church law, but the financial transaction, the six shillings and eight pence that you've paid for the leather, could be subject to secular law. So there's an overlap, and what what that means in practice is these laws develop and become more sophisticated, particularly in the use of writing, written records, court records, to administer these, which is really happening in the 13th and into the 14th century, so we're moving forward a bit. It's basically what savvy local cobblers do, is they decide which court they're most likely to get the outcome they want from if they take their case to it. So if they think it's a church court, they'll go to a church court. If they think it's um, the guild court, they'll go to the guild court. If they think it's a city court, they'll go to the city court. And what you find, by the time you have a lot of evidence for this, which is really into the 14th century, is that ordinary businessmen know, they understand the law, and they essentially use, and even in that sense run, the law courts to work to their benefit, and they will choose whatever legal solution best suits their the end that they have in mind. So 
in one sense, it's really complicated because there are all these different places that you can go if you fall out with your neighbour and you're, uh, you know, in dispute over this, you know, buying this leather. But on the other hand, it's quite simple. You you know the system and you go where you think you're going to get the best answer that best suits your your needs. So do people represent themselves or did they hire lawyers? Because it sounds like a changes over time. Changes over time. So... Um, increasingly into the 14th century people are hiring attorneys and there's a huge growth in the legal profession in England in the 14th and into the 15th century. Lawyers working both in um, the common law courts, which is the king's courts, and in the canon law courts, the church courts. Um, and is that a particular area in York? It's not a physical area as such, no. There are a lot of lawyers who live in and around the Minster Close. But, you know, it's not a ghetto. In London in the 15th century, we're going, you know, we're moving hundreds of years as we talk here. In the 15th century, you do begin to get the establishment of inns of court, which are mostly just outside the walls of the city on the west, uh, around the Strand and Fleet Street. And those are used as um, both places of training and places of residence for lawyers working in the royal courts, which are in Westminster, which is about a mile and a half to the west of the City of London. But in York you don't get that, yeah. uh, because you don't have those big royal courts in the, in the based in the city permanently. Then you might get county courts appearing peripatetically occasionally from time to time. And the castle is, becomes, the castle having been built in the Norman period, as a military fortification by the 13th century is really a centre for legal and financial administration. By then, the royal palace has has been destroyed. It's destroyed during the civil uprising against um, King John, just before about the time the charter is granted. Um, and then the county court stops meeting there, and it starts meeting in the castle that we know as uh, Clifford's Tower. Did I miss that? The civil uprising against King John. Yeah, we hadn't York. talked about that before. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Um. <laughs> right, so the 12th century, the 1100s, mm. is quite a lively period in terms of, you talked about the anarchy, that's Stephen um, and Matilda. uh, For fans of historical fiction, it's the Cadfail time, the traditional setting for Robin Hood. Yes, yes. Um, York and the North, presumably, well, it's become quite a pastime, really, isn't it, rebelling against... Yes, it's pretty much ongoing, really. So there has been this big Young King's Rebellion that's suppressed by Henry II in the 1170s, and that sort of works for a short while but his sons Richard the Lionheart who replaces him as king in 1189 and then his younger brother John are absentee monarchs or they're uh, weak monarchs Um, and so the again local noblemen, local rulers local wealthy merchants even continue to be unsympathetic to these southerners rule particularly when they're asking you know for large sums of money in taxation and there are perennial attempts, to, particularly to destabilise King John's reign. I mean, if you think about Magna Carta, for example, um, there are uprisings in the north associated with that baron's war against King John. Um, and that's when a local leader, William Fairfax, who probably is never described as mayor, but he's described as a reeve of York, so he was probably the equivalent of the mayor of York, actually leads a small army to attack the royal house, captures its custodian a man called William Malsors, imprisons him. And that's really the last that we hear of the royal house in York as a royal centre of government. And that would be where now? 
So that's on Toft Green. So it's exactly where the original railway station is and where the council offices are now. And I think that's one reason why we don't hear very much about it, because the construction of that railway station in the early 19th century pretty much obliterated all archaeology in that section of the city. So we're never going to find any archaeological evidence of it because it's all gone. But it's just inside the Roman walls. Archaeologists definitely have a bone to pick with railways. So I've, I've, yes. Heard, yes. I've yeah. heard that from so many. In spite of all this new building, the institutions, the abbeys, the priories, the work on the minster, the street pattern of York stays pretty much the same. Roughly the same, yeah. You get some alterations around um, Back Swingate, um, Grape Lane, that kind of area. That seems to be changing direction. A lot of it is the Roman street plan that gets altered. Uh, so it's sort of parts of the city stay very, very similar. They just basically keep the Roman street plan. Other areas get a lot more streets develop in the 10th and 11th centuries. And then post-conquest, um, there's definitely a reorientation of, I think it's Back Swingate, the, the way it kind of sweeps around the corner now, um, that used to go straight down to kind of St. Helens Square, and then that gets blocked off by building, and then they, they turn sideways. And that the only reason we know that happens is because when YAT dug there, they found um, the, the road goes straight over um, a former churchyard. Um, and those are 10th and 11th and maybe early 12th century burials, and then that road cuts that off. So there is some reorientation uh, of, the, of the, the streetscape, but for the most part, relatively recognizable from the Anglo-Scandinavian period into the post-conquest period. So people are uh, moving through the city in roughly the same way as they would have, um, you know, apart from those walls. But the building stock would have been being developed all around them. Um, you know, we know from the excavations at Jorvik that even within the the 10th century, we're seeing multiple versions of these buildings. Um, the same would have happened in the 11th and 12th century. The, the building up, so what we see in the shambles, building up, uh, happens more and more. Um, you get some major stone buildings, so the little fragment of a Norman stone domestic house that's, I think it's off of Stonegate, there's a small bit of a Norman house there that would have been a new 12th century uh, development so so yeah there there would have been a lot of, of adaptation of the building stock but I think you, you'd see that in any city you know uh, it's not particular to York I think um, there's a, a lot of economic growth and a lot of population growth. So York's doing quite well? Mm, yeah very well in the post-conquest period absolutely it's undoubtedly the primary city of the north at this point and it's going to remain that way really through the later middle ages I mean you do get the establishment of the the castle at Newcastle and, and things like that and you get growth in Hull and, and places like that but York is really the the epicenter uh, here and you're not going to get another city of this size and importance until you get down to Lincoln on the east coast so yeah York is is doing exceptionally well out of the conquest whatever ructions may have happened in the immediate <laughs> period afterwards uh, by the 12th century it's um, yeah it's going great guns and that's in spite and not because of what's happening elsewhere in England. York's importance attracts many people from further afield, particularly if they have the protection of the king. But with the 12th century a time of constant turmoil, they will find that isn't enough. My thanks to Professor Sarah Rees-Jones, whose book, York, the Making of a City, 1068-1350, to 1350, 
is published by Oxford University Press, and to Alexandra McLean, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at the University of York. The Spirit of York is Alison Willis. This episode of History City was made with the help of the Institute for the Public Understanding of the Past at the University of York. So my thanks to IPUP's director, Dr Victoria Hoyle, and to researcher George Young. The show was recorded and produced by me, Guy Morgan of Soundstage North. For links to further information, please look at our show notes. And if you enjoyed the programme, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. Thanks for listening to History City, and we hope you can join us next time.